Welcome to In That Case. My name is Joel Townsend and this is my podcast about important pieces of public interest litigation which have shaped Australian life. You can find previous episodes of the podcast on the website at www.inthatcasepodcast.com and you can find me on Twitter at, at @townsendjoelc. You can also of course find the podcast on Stitcher and on Apple Podcasts. So on 8 March 1996, um, a woman called Corinna Horvath was alleged to have unlawfully driven her car, a Tirana. She lived on the Mornington Peninsula near Melbourne. And on that day, two police officers called Jenkin and Davison from the local police station attended at her property. They didn't have a warrant or any other um, permission to attend at the premises and they were pretty roughly ejected uh, from the premises. They proceeded to call a lot of reinforcements and those reinforcements went into the property with some considerable force while a barbecue was being held there. And during the course of that raid, Karina Horvath was, in the words of uh, the judge who ultimately heard a dispute about the matter, was brutally and unnecessarily punched in what was described as a disgraceful and outrageous display of police force. She was hospitalised for a number of days, and after charges laid against her were dismissed, she took her case to the county court. Uh, the police were found liable, and the state of Victoria was found also liable for the conduct of the police. But the state of Victoria appealed to the Court of Appeal, and the Court of Appeal held that the Police Regulation Act didn't fix liability on the state of Victoria for the conduct of those police. So Corinna Horvath couldn't recover against the state of Victoria for the police conduct. Ultimately, she took her case to the United Nations Human Rights Committee and was successful there. And as a consequence of the Human Rights Committee's opinion, laws in Victoria have changed and a number of things have happened for Karina Horvath. I spoke to Karina and to one of the barristers who acted for her, Dyson Hall Lacey QC, and I started with Karina, who described her limited memory of the incident and also talked to me about the county court trial in which she prevailed in pursuing damages against the state. I'm so glad that I actually don't remember the incident, um, not in detail that everybody else remembers it. And it's the first time in the trial, just gone in his in his trial, it's the first time that I've actually heard the evidence of the witnesses. And yeah, I couldn't believe it. You were you were in hospital for a number of days. How soon after that yeah. did you fix on um this idea of pursuing a claim in relation to um, the police conduct? Um yeah, well, I was I was actually pretty affected for the first few years after that, so I kind of switched off. Um, 
Craig and everyone else, you know, went, went ahead and, and followed the advice that was given and I was pretty much just a prop. Honestly, I just sat in the corner of the solicitor's office, looked out the window and pretty much did not speak. Um, I was really, really affected. I'm a completely different person now. Um, but back then, yeah, I was, I was a bit of a victim and, um, I didn't like it and I'll never be that way again. Um, but I was. So, I think it was, because they obviously charged me, I think we had about maybe 12 to 15 separate charges, and that was all to get ready, um, I suppose, so they had a story as to why it happened. So I had I had quite a few charges between me and Craig. Um, we ended up going to court for that, I'm pretty sure, that I was in hospital the day that we were meant to go to Frankston Court when I was being charged. Um, I'm pretty sure I'd gone back to hospital uh, the second time round. Um, and it was when all the charges were thrown out that we were advised to pursue them. And so we did. We sat down for a mediation that went nowhere. And like I said, that then, I pretty much shut out everyone and everything. I didn't speak. I listened to a scanner, a police scanner when you could back then. I listened to a police scanner 24 hours a day. I was petrified of where they were. And like I said, I was just a victim. Um, and so I was quite shut off back then. And it wasn't until we got to the county court that I started getting involved. And Dyson Hall Lacey got me involved, got me thinking, and it gave me jobs to do while we were in court, believe it or not. And that's when I started, yeah turn and a corner on the whole thing. The county court ordered some damages, as I've said, against the state of Victoria for the conduct of the police officers in question. And Victoria appealed that decision to the Court of Appeal. There, Victoria argued that Section 123 of the Police Regulation Act, which is the relevant provision, didn't have the effect of attaching liability to Victoria for the conduct of police officers except where police had acted in good faith. And this was because of an old case called Enova which predated the Police Regulation Act and that case said, well, police exercise an independent discretion in carrying out their duties and therefore they're personally liable and the state is not liable for their conduct. In the Court of Appeal, the state argued that Section 123 of the Police Regulation Act limited the effect of ENEVA so that the state could be held liable, but only where police were acting in good faith. And here, it was conceded by all, there was no good faith on the part of police. This was conduct which was clearly outside the scope of what could be called the good faith execution of duties. And that was all important because the police in question had no assets and therefore Corinna and the other people who had sued the police couldn't recover against the officers in question. The state succeeded in its argument in the Court of Appeal and the application made for leave to the High Court to challenge that decision was unsuccessful. So Corinna was left with uh, no way of recovering the damages which the court had held she was entitled to for the harm done to her. (laughs) 
problem was an old case called Enova, 1906 High Court, which said that the police policemen weren't servants or agents. They, in fact, employed an independent discretion. So, consequently, they got out of vicarious liability on the basis that that uh, that uh, they weren't servants or agents, and that was the start of it. You could only sue them if what they did was in good faith, which is and in the course of their employment, in the course of their uh, duties. When was it that it became clear that you would never be able to recover any compensation from the officers themselves? Um, look, it, we remember, I remember an elevator trip from... Remember when the county court used to be down on... Um, um, the county court wasn't where it was on the corner. It was down... Um, where the Owen Dixon chambers are, so further down. It's where the OPP are now. That was the old county court, and that's where it was. And we were in the elevator, and the state of Victoria, their solicitors, turned around and said, I don't know who it was to, it was directed at us, I think maybe to our council, and said, just so you know, we will appeal. And so we knew straight away, if we did win it, they were going to appeal. We won it and they appealed straight away. So it was always, we always knew that, you know, even if things did go out, should have, um, that they were going to appeal and they were going to make things hard. So it was actually disgraceful because it's quite obvious that they'd done the wrong thing, but the government would continue to fight for officers that did the wrong thing they got proven to do the wrong thing. Then, um, remember, I think it was in the Court of Appeal that they were left to their own devices. Like the government said, you acted out of the scope of your duty and we're not responsible for you. I remember walking in and everything was quite, they were up, you know, they were up, um, up high. And there was probably about three judges there. I'm pretty sure there was a heap of seats. I can just vaguely remember. And But there were a few judges there, and they just pretty much said no. Um, so, yeah, we walked in there, and we walked out of there, and then that was it. It was forgotten about. We just accepted that nothing was going to happen, that we were never going to get um, any recognition, that they had done the wrong thing, and we just moved on with our lives. And then... Flemington and Kensington took over. They wanted to work with it. They sent it to the UN and so many years later, yeah, the UN came back with a decision. I was blown away. I could not believe it. Could not believe it. Notwithstanding her failure to get special leave to appeal to the High Court, Corinna Horvath pressed on. She made a complaint to the Human Rights Committee of the United Nations, the committee which is responsible for considering whether there has been, in a given case, a breach of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And Corinna argued that the failure to provide an effective remedy to her for police misconduct was a breach of her rights under the Covenant. The Human Rights Committee found in her favour and it suggested to Victoria that what it ought to do is, one, prosecute the key police officer involved in the case, two, provide compensation to 
Corinna, and three, change the law in relation to police misconduct. I spoke to Dyson Hall Lacey and to Corinna about that UN complaint. Corinna talked about the experience of the prosecution proceeding just last year and how much hardship was involved in going through that process again. But I also talked to Dyson Hall Lacey about the changes to the law in relation to enforcement of rights to pursue remedies for police misconduct and about how effective some of the changes are that have been made as a result of Corinna's case. Well, I acted for her in the county court. I didn't act for her in the... uh, I acted for her with Jamie Gorton in the High Court where we didn't get special leave. Anyway, I thought that was the end of the road, the High Court, but I worked as a coroner for a while, and whilst we were at a a lecture on the Victorian Charter of of Human Rights, there was a lot of material on the United Nations uh, body. And I started reading through it, and I thought, God, this is dealing with uh, getting... uh, a uh, compensation for home invasions, for assaults. I thought this fits about three things. Anyway, I looked up, researched it further and found that, one, we had to exhaust all domestic possibilities and for some reason nobody had uh, attempted to bankrupt the police concern. So I paid for a solicitor to bankrupt them and uh, we got a letter, we settled it and got a letter back saying that they'd got rid of assets and we'd be wasting our time. So uh, then I asked Kensington Flemington Tamal Hopkins if she could be the solicitor, which she agreed to. Michael Stanton and I did the submissions and they did a response and I factored the reply. I had to get a letter from the solicitor saying that his very strong view, his very strong advice to me was that... uh, the settlement of the bankruptcy proceedings was as good as we could get. And that was it. And we waited for a while, a couple of years, and they said, you still want to go on with this? And we said, yes. Almost forgotten about it. Then we told it a, uh, the result was imminent. And you should, you know the rest. One, they had to compensate it. Two, they had to charge Jenkins. And three, they had to change the law. And they had to report back to them within six months to show what they have done. And the the state did it. When we were in the magistrate's court last year, November, that was um, the committal hearing. And God, when they called my name, I nearly spewed. I really did. Having to go in there and have him stare at me and have his solicitors belittle me yet again, you know. I think that's the hardest bit. Every time you go to court, every time you put yourself in that situation, you are made out to be a liar. You are belittled and you are made to feel like you're an absolute asshole, basically. You know, I smoked bongs back then and I had a bit of a drink and that's brought up and that is concentrated on and it's like it's not who I am to what I did back then. Um, so that's really hard every time... 
you know, that sort of stuff's um, brought up. It's, yeah, I don't know. It's hurtful. I don't regret anything that I've that I've done, but to have people that you don't know look at you like you are a piece of shit and that you deserved it, um, that's hurtful. Well, I always thought it was the shocking injustice and uh, the whole the whole thing that the state of Victoria could escape liability on the basis that the behaviour of the police was so bad then the state didn't have to cover them. And uh, anyway, as a result of the, the uh, United Nations decision, which was unanimous against the state, the uh, law has been changed, which makes it much easier to sue for police. Now, if they want to get out of something, they've got to give you notice that they're cutting the police drive at cutting them loose, but they never do. They got rid of the, the Enivis Enivis case. They, they the law has been there for a long time that police officers are regarded to be, as being servants or agents of the crown. So that was the big problem with the case in Victoria and Enivis case that said they weren't servants or agents of the crown. But New South Wales, they fixed that up by legislative uh, amendment one of the acts so our servants are agents of the crown just like any other employee northern territory was the same i don't know about all of the others i've forgotten about all the others but i know victoria stood out if it's a police tort you're alleging a police tort and as i say if they haven't cut the policeman aside then you can just go ahead. You don't have to prove anything else, or not much else. Obviously, you've got to prove that they're police officers. But that's not very difficult to to prove when most of um, indiscretions, police indiscretions, happen when they're in uniform or in police stations. But I've had uh, a number of cases that have gone to verdict and gone to court involving the new legislation, and it's much easier, and it makes it much fairer. Against the background of Corinna's case, I talked to her and to Dyson Hall-Lacey about a number of issues in relation to police accountability. I talked to Corinna about her original complaint about police misconduct and a couple of ways in which she felt police accountability could be improved. The use of body cameras and other cameras to record police conduct and an independent investigation mechanism. And I talked to Dyson Hall-Lacey about the process of litigating police misconduct claims and how hard fought that can be. And did you make a complaint through the ordinary complaint processes or was the view... Yeah, look, a complaint was made that night by um, a couple of the people, well, mainly one of the people that were at the house. So Triple O was called that night. And Triple um, O were there, well, the, like the police were there not long after the police had left. And then I think it was, what do they call it back then, ESD? ESD were involved the next day. So that was done straight away. But it didn't uh, take you anywhere? Uh, no. Well, apparently, you know, it was being investigated, but as we found out later, it wasn't investigated at all. And so not the-, the way it should have been. So it sounds as though where you land on all of that is that you are still very much of the view that there's a gap when it comes to police accountability here. Oh, yeah, definitely there is. 
um, the way that it was investigated or actually wasn't investigated back then um, was pretty disgraceful. So if um, things were done properly back then, I think, you know, dragged out the way that it did. It dragged out way too long for everybody, for us, for everyone. It was a waste of everybody's time. Um, It should have just been dealt with straight away. Oh, yes, they've got almost unlimited money. And uh, they usually fight them tooth or nail. I think they're running, they take it to court on pleadings points all the time. They think they'll run you out of money. And if we didn't do these things, no win, no fee. It'd be pretty hopeless. One of the, the things that's, that's sort of um, touted now as a, as a solution to this problem of um, police misconduct is body cameras and, and things of this sort. Yeah. So uh, am I to take it that your view is that that sort of um, technology is something which offers real promise in terms of holding police. I think it's a great idea because it makes them accountable for their actions. Back then, police weren't accountable for their actions. And, you know, people think that we lie about um, the way that it was back then. You know what I mean? It was very old school back then. And you did cop a clip around the year every now and then and you just accepted it because there was kind of nothing you could do about it anyway. But that wouldn't happen these days because everyone's walking around with a mobile phone. Yeah. Um, So now they are made accountable, so they do have to be careful. And I reckon that the body cameras are great. I don't like that police investigate police. They really do need that independent body because they need someone to sit back and someone out of the whole mates group, you know, because it is a big family, let's face it. That's just the way that it is. Um, I've got a lot of friends these days who are police officers and, you know, you hear about the inner workings and they are a big family. So they've all got to look out for each other and I don't like that. So when you're investigating the wrongdoing of them, I think that they need that independent body. This has been an incredibly long and drawn-out series of cases which only ended in 2018 when Graeme Jenkin, the police officer who was at the centre of the raids and who had originally gone to the property to try to work out whether Corinna had unlawfully driven her car, was prosecuted unsuccessfully in the county court. It's clear from talking to Corinna that this has been a long and very difficult journey for her at times. She talked to me about how hard that had been and also where she found strength, and Dyson Hall Lacey expressed his admiration for her and how she had grown through the process and the woman she is now. She's a remarkably, remarkably strong woman who's like a... She got into a little bit of minor problems when she was younger with resist arrest and things but like 95% of people who do she's grown into a wonderful woman wonderful mother coaches the netball club and she got so much support from the mothers of the of the kids that she she taught between all of the you know the court cases and the involvement with um, Flemington Kensington and all the rest, like, I kind of put it to the back of my mind, you know, because, like, there's no point dwelling on it. So I'm so flat out at home. Um, I've got three kids. I run this place. 
Um, I coach netball. I'm, like, I'm pretty flat out, so I just get on with things. And then when that comes up, then I have to hash it all up and, and just deal with it. We haven't even covered all of the complexity of the Horvath proceedings through the courts. Uh, there were disputes about undertakings by solicitors and costs. It was a very complex and drawn-out saga, but I hope that this gives you a picture of the importance of this case in changing Victorian law around police regulation. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from Corinna Horvath and Dyson Horlacey, and I'm very grateful to both of them for speaking to me. Once again, you can find past episodes on the website at www.inthatcasepodcast.com and on Stitcher and on Apple Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at at Townsend Joel C. I'll look forward to joining you on the next episode of In That Case. Thank you.